Chapter Twenty Six of the Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Twenty Six: The Flying Death. Steadying himself with a splendid display of self-control and sheer courage, Captain Valaquin concentrated upon the management of the biplane. The drone of its motor thickened again, its speed became greater, and the machine began to rise still higher, tracing a long, graceful curve. Lanyard glanced apprehensively towards the girl, but apparently she remained unconscious of anything out of the ordinary. Her face was still turned forward, and still the wind veil trembled against her glowing cheeks. Thanks to the racket of the motor, no audible reports had accompanied the sharpshooting of the man in the monoplane, while Lanyard's cry of horror and dismay had been audible to himself exclusively. Hearing nothing, Lucy suspected nothing. Again, Lignard looked back. Now the biker seemed to have crept up within a quarter of a mile of the biplane, and was boring on at a tremendous pace, its single spread of wings on an approximate level with that of the lower plane of the parrot. But this last was rising steadily. The driver's seat of the biker held a muffled burly figure that might be anybody, de Motahan, Ekstrom, or any other homicidal maniac. At the distance its actions were as illegible as the results were unquestionable. Lignard saw a little tongue of flame leak out from a point close beside the head of the figure, he couldn't distinguish the firearm itself, and like Valaquin, quite without premeditation, he ducked. At the same time there sounded a harsh, ripping noise immediately above his head, and he found himself staring up at a long, ragged tear in the canvas, caused by the bullet striking at a slant. "'What's to be done?' he screamed passionately at Valaquin. The aviator shook his head impatiently, and they continued to ascend. Already the web of gold that cloaked earth and sea seemed thrice as far beneath their feet as it had been when Valaquin made the appalling discovery of his bullet-punctured sleeve but the monoplane was doggedly following suit. As the parrot rose, so did the viker, if a trace more slowly and less flexibly. Lanyard had read somewhere, or heard it said, that monoplanes were poor machines for climbing. He told himself that, if this were true, Vaquilin knew his business, and from this reflection drew what comfort he might. And he was glad, very glad, of the dark wind veil that shrouded his face, which he believed to be nothing less than a mask of panic terror. He was, in fact, quite rigid with fear and horror, it were idle to argue that only unlikely chance would win one of the bullets of the biker to a vital point. There was the torn canvas overhead. There was that hole through Vecklin's sleeve. And then the barograph on the strut beside Lanyard disappeared as if by magic. He was aware of a slight jar. The framework of the biplane quivered as from a heavy blow. Something that resembled a handful of black crumbs sprayed out in the air ahead and it vanished. And where the instrument had been, nothing remained but an iron clamp gripping the strut. And even as any one of those bullets might have proved fatal, their first successor might disable the aviator if it did not slay him outright. In either case, the inevitable result would be death, following a fall from a height, as recorded by the barograph dial an instant before its destruction, of more than four thousand feet. They were still climbing. Now the pursuer was losing some of the advantage in his superior speed. The parrot was perceptibly higher. The viker must needs mount in a more sweeping curve. Nonetheless, Lanyard, peering down, saw still another tongue of flame spit out at him and two bullet holes appeared in the port-side wings of the biplane, one in the lower, one in the upper spread of canvas. White-limbed and trembling, the adventurer began to work at the fastenings of his surtout. After a moment he plucked off one of his gloves and cast it impatiently from him. A sprawl, it sailed down the wind like a wounded sparrow. He caught Vaquilin's eye upon him, quick with a curiosity which changed to a sudden gleam of comprehension as Lanyard, thrusting his head under the leather coat, groped for his pocket and produced an automatic pistol which Ducroy had pressed upon his acceptance. They were now perhaps a hundred feet higher than the biker, which was soaring a quarter of a mile off to starboard. 
Under the guidance of the freshman, the parrot swooped round in a narrow circle till it hung almost immediately above the other, a maneuver requiring, first and last, something more than five minutes to effect. Meanwhile, Lanyard rebuttoned his soteau and clutched the pistol, trying hard not to think. But already his imagination was sick with the thought of what would ensue when the time came for him to carry out his purpose. Vaquelin touched his arm with urgent pressure, but Lanyard only shook his head, gulped, and without looking surrendered the weapon to the aviator. Bearing heavily against the chest band, he commanded the broad white spread of the biker's back and wings. Invisible beneath these hung the motor and the driver's seat. An instant more, and he was aware that Vaquelin was leaning forward and looking down. Aiming with what deliberation was possible, the aviator emptied his clip of eight cartridges in less than a minute. The vicious reports rang out against the drum of the motor like the cracking of a black snake whip. Momentarily, Dunyard doubted if any one bullet had taken effect. He could not, with his swimming vision, detect sign of damage in the canvas of the biker. He saw the empty automatic slip from Vaquelin's numb and nerveless hands. It vanished. A frightful fascination kept his gaze constant to the soaring biker. Beyond it, down, deep down a mile of emptiness, was that golden floor of tumbled cloud, waiting. He saw the monoplane check abruptly in its strong upward surge, as if it had run full tilt, head on, against an invisible obstacle, and for what seemed a round minute it hung so, veering and wobbling, nuzzling the wind. Then, like a sounding whale, it turned and dived headlong, propeller spinning like a top. Down to the eighth of a mile of space it plunged plummet-like, then, perhaps caught in a flaw of wind, it turned sideways and began to revolve, at first slowly, but with increasing rapidity in its fatally swift descent. Towards the beginning of its revolutions, something was thrown off, something small, dark, and sprawling, like that glove which Glenyard had discarded, but this object dropped with a speed even greater than that of the biker. In a brace of seconds had diminished to the proportions of a gnat, and another was engulfed in that vast sea of golden vapor. Even so, the monoplane itself, scarcely less precipitate, spun down through the abyss and plunged to oblivion in the fog rack. And Lanyard was still hanging against the chest band, limp and spent and trying not to vomit, when, of a sudden, and without any warning whatever, the Satorian chant of the motor ceased, and was blotted up by that immense silence, by the terrible silence of those vast solitudes of the upper air, where never a sound is heard save the voices of the elements at war among themselves, a silence that rang with an accent as dreadful as the crack of doom in the ears of those three suspended there, in the heart of that imaginably placid and immaculate radiance, in the vast hollow of the heavens, midway between the deep blue of the eternal dome and the rose and golden welter of the fog, that fog which, cloaking earth and sea, hid as well every vestige of the tragedy they had wrought, every sign of the murder that they had done, that they themselves might not be murdered and cast down to destruction. And its propeller no longer gripping the air, the aeroplane drifted on at ever-lessening speed, until it had no way whatever and rested without motion of any sort, as it might have been in the cup of some mighty and invisible hand, held up to that stark and merciless light, under the passionless eye of the infinite, to await a judgment. Then, with a little shudder of hesitation, the planes dipped, inclined slightly earthwards, and began slowly and as if reluctantly to slip down the long and empty channels of the air. At this, rousing, Lanyard became aware of his own voice yammering wildly at Vaquelin. "'Good God, man! Why did you do that?' Vaquelin answered only with a pale grimace and a barely perceptible shrug. Momentarily gathering momentum, the biplane sped downward with a resistless rush, with the speed of a great wind, a speed so great that when the yard again attempted speech, the breath was whipped from his lips and he could utter no sound. Thus, from that awful height, from the still heart of that immeasurable void, they swept down and ever down, in a long series of sickening swoops, broken only by negligible pauses. And though they approached it on a long slant, 
the floor of vapor rose to meet them like a mighty rushing wave. In a trice, the biplane was hovering instantaneously before plunging on down into that cold, gray world of fog. In that moment of hesitation, while still the adventurer gasped for breath and pawed at his streaming eyes with an aching hand, pierced through and through with cold, the fog showed itself as something less substantial than it had seemed. Blurs of color glowed through its folds of gauze, and with these the rounded summit of a brownish knoll. Then they plunged on, down out of the bleak bright sunshine into cool twilight depths of clinging vapors, and the good green earth lifted its warm bosom to receive them. Tilting its nose a trifle, fluttering as though undecided, the parrot settled gracefully, with scarcely a jar, upon a wide sweep of untilled land covered with short coarse grass. For some time the three remained in their perches like petrified things, quite moveless, and with the possible exception of the aviator, hardly conscious. But presently, Lanyard became aware that he was regularly filling his lungs with air, sweet, damp, wholesome, and by comparison warm, and that the blood was tingling painfully in his half-frozen hands and feet. He sighed as one wakening from a strange dream. At the same time, the aviator restored himself, and began a bit stiffly to climb down. Feeling the earth beneath his feet, he took a step or two away from the machine, reeling and stumbling like a drunk man, then turned back. Come, my friend, he urged Lanyard in a voice of strangely normal intonation. Look alive, if you're able, and lend me a hand with that mademoiselle. I'm afraid she has fainted. The girl was reclining inertly in the bands of webbing, her eyes closed, her lips ajar, her limbs slackened. Small blame to her, Lanyard commented, fumbling clumsily with the chest band. That die was enough to drive a body mad. But I had to do it, the aviator protested earnestly. I dared not remain longer up there. I have never before been afraid in the air, but after that I was terribly afraid. I could feel myself going, taking leave of my senses, and I knew I must act if we were not to follow that other. God, what a death! He paused, shuddered, and drew the back of his hand across his eyes before continuing. So I cut off the ignition and volplaned. Here, my hand. So, all right, eh? Oh, I'm all right, Lanyard insisted confidently. But his confidence was belied by a look of daze, for the earth was billowing and reeling round him as though bewitched, and before he knew what had happened he sat down hard and stared foolishly up at the aviator. Here, said the latter courteously, his wind mask hiding a smile, my hand again, monsieur. You've endured more than you know. And now for mademoiselle. But when they approached the girl, she surprised both by shivering, sitting up, and obviously pulling herself together. You'll feel better now, mademoiselle? Vaquelin inquired, hastening to loosen her fastenings. I'm better, yes, thank you, she admitted in a small, broken voice. But not yet quite myself. She gave a hand to the aviator, the other to Lanyard, and as they helped her to the ground, Lanyard, warned by his experience, stood by with a ready arm. She needed that support, and for a few minutes didn't even seem conscious of it. Then, gently disengaging, she moved a foot or two away. Where are we? Do you know? On the south down somewhere, Lanyard suggested, consulting Vaquelin. That is probable, this last affirmed. At all events, judging from the course I steered. Somewhere well in from the coast, at a venture. I don't hear the sea. Near Luz, perhaps? I have no reason to doubt that. A constraining pause ensued. The girl looked from the aviator to Lanyard, then turned away from both, and, trembling with fatigue and enforcing self-control by clenching her hands, stared aimlessly off into the mist. Painfully, Lanyard set himself to consider their position. The parrot had come to rest in what seemed to be a wide, shallow, saucer-like depression, whose irregular bounds were cloaked in fog. In this space no living thing stirred save themselves, and the waste was crossed by not so much as a sheep track. In brief, they were lost. 
There might be a road running past the saucer ten yards from its brim in any quarter. There might not. Possibly there was a town or village immediately adjacent. Quite as possibly, the downs billowed away for desolate miles on either hand. Well, what do we do now? the girl demanded suddenly, in a nervous voice, sharp and jarring. Oh, we'll find a way out of this somehow, Vaquilina asserted confidently. England isn't big enough for anybody to remain lost in it. Not for long, at any events. I'm sorry only on Miss Shannon's account. We'll manage somehow, Lanyard affirmed stoutly. The aviator smiled curiously. To begin with, he advanced, I dare say we might as well get rid of these awkward costumes. They'll hamper walking, rather. In spite of this fatigue, Lanyard was so struck by the circumstances that he couldn't help remarking it as he tore off his wind veil. Your English is remarkably good, Captain Belquillen, he observed. The other laughed shortly. Why not? said he, removing his mask. Lanyard looked up into his face, stared, and fell back a pace. Wertheimer, he gasped. End of chapter 26 Recording by Todd